0: good morning y'all pray with me father we we're grateful we're grateful that you're a faithful god we're grateful that you're a god who keeps your word keeps your promises no matter how long we feel like we have to wait for them um Lord, our eyes will see the consummation of all of the promises that you have given because you are faithful. And so, Lord, we ask uh, just for special grace today as we turn our attention to your word. Lord, we ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would help us to see your glory, the glory of your son, Jesus, in these Old Testament types and shadows and pictures and promises. And help us, Lord, to be uh, sharp-minded and tender-hearted towards your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, you are in um, Genesis chapter 21. And uh, let me just kind of introduce this by sort of paraphrasing uh, something a wise man once said. John Owen described how the scriptures talk about the glory of Christ in in the Bible. And he says, God wisely does not put... Everything there is to know about the glory of Christ into one text because it would be as if he took the light from the sun and the moon and all the stars and packed it into one small place to see it would, to, would, to, would be to die. It would just be too much. And so what he did is he, just like he does with the lights of the firmament, is he scattered throughout all of the scripture the glories of Christ. Sometimes in the Old Testament, like this text in front of us, he said, You would see the glory of Christ in type and in shadow and in pointing and pattern, those kind of things. In the New Testament, you see it clearly displayed. And so he said, as we turn to the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, he said, um, you you can view ourselves almost like Eve in the garden, just kind of going through and picking flowers of the glories of Christ, just gathering up all of these different pictures. So we've seen tons of pictures about the glory of Christ. We're going to see several today. Some some shadows and some pointing toward our Lord Christ, and uh, and also towards His covenant people and His interactions with them. Um, I'll tell you, this is not an easy text to uh, to interpret, and so um, we're just going to think through it together, and and we'll dwell on some things at the end. But that's I want to show you, if I can, some of the glories of Christ from this text. So. So in Genesis twenty-one, look in verse one, and what you're going to see is you're going to see finally a fulfillment. In Genesis twelve, God began to promise things to Abraham. This is twenty-five years later. How many times have you been reading the Psalms and you hear the psalmist say, "How long, O Lord?" And we say, "Amen." (laughs) Like we understand that. How long? How long are we going to wait? Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah understood that. But in in chapter 21, verse 1, you see something repeated three times. It's marvelous. The Lord visited Sarah, what does your text say? As he said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to to him three times god kept his word he did it to abraham he will keep it to you he will keep it to me we may feel like our circumstances the timing all of those things god you're late in fulfilling god's never late he's right on time always it's like gandalf said to frodo a wizard is never late he arrives precisely when he intends to god is never late He does exactly what he said he would do. So you see a fulfillment of his word. And the timing is in his hands at the time which God had spoken to him. Verse 3, you see a pattern of how God's covenant uh, is passed on to the next generation. Look in verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah had born, Isaac. You're going to see um, the importance of names throughout this entire text. You know this. Isaac means to laugh, or he laughs, which is a throwback to the to the um, to the response of Abraham when God said to Abraham, "Sarah, not Hagar, but Sarah is going to have a baby," and he laughed. No way. She's too old. Can that really be possible? And then. Later on, Sarah, eavesdropping at the tent flat, heard the same thing. And what did she do? She laughed incredulously, disbelievingly. Now they're laughing in a different way. They're laughing with joy because God made good on his promise. And so Abraham names his son Yitzhak. He laughs. So every single time he calls his name, he reminds himself that what God promised, I laughed in disbelief, and yet here he comes, running in the shoes I get to put on his feet. Isn't that amazing? He calls him Isaac. And he puts him in the covenant of of Abraham, the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, old, as God commanded him. So Again, you guys know that my views on the sacraments have have, uh, changed, sacrament has changed of late. Um, And the the idea of uh, infant baptism is born straight out of verses like these, where we saw Abraham, who was an old man when he believed and was justified. He was an old man when he was circumcised. And so that's first generation covenant. But his offspring are are circumcised eight days after they're born. Same thing with Christians. When we see in the New Testament, first generation believers, they're baptized upon profession of faith. And then their children, I believe, were baptized upon birth, put under the covenant. And so he circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. As Isaac asked him to? No, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine a kid ever growing up saddled with more love and affection from his parents than this kid? They've been waiting for him forever. A 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made, and play on his name, Yitzhak for me. It's a double entendre. He's made laughter. He's also made a baby. This is is not something that Abraham and Sarah did on their own flesh, in their own planning. This is something that God alone has done. He has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. They'll hear the story and they'll laugh at what God has done for two old people. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children. By the way, there's probably a helpful, um, that probably answers a helpful question from last week when we saw Abimelech taking this old woman into his harem. And we say, why, why would he have done that? Here she's nursing an infant. So it looks as though God has somehow worked back the clock on Sarah, that her, her body is able to do what only young women can do. That Sarah would nurse children. She confesses right here. She's breastfeeding Isaac. It's amazing. And yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's a glorious picture and a glorious fulfillment. But, but, as you know, until the final trumpet sound, until Christ comes back and the dead arise and we find ourselves in the eternal state, there's always going to be a letdown. There's always going to be some problem. God does great and wonderful things and then... Uh, flesh and sin and those kind of things get in the way. So in verse 8, we see the but to the story. We see problems in paradise. And the child grew and was weaned. By the way, uh, uh, most of the commentaries that I, uh, that I referenced said that in this day and age, they, they viewed weaning. They would push it back as late as they could because they viewed that as um, giving a child a leg up and, and strength. And so it's probably three years, three to six years old. When Isaac was weaned, which means uh, um, Ishmael is probably 14 to 16, somewhere in there. The child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. And you won't see this right here, but you'll I think you'll be able to see it later that this feast, I believe um, Abimelech and the Philistines are at this feast celebrating with them. Because the, the context, the way the story is told, this is all one story. That's why we're going to look at all of it. So Abraham throws this great feast. And you can imagine what a guy who sees strangers, three strangers, and he makes them a glorious feast. What does he do when he's got a time to plan? This is glorious. And so this, this huge party, It's everything is, everything is grand, everything is high. But Sarah, and watch this, this is interesting, but Sarah saw... The son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Notice the text doesn't name him, doesn't name Ishmael. The son of Hagar, the Egyptian woman whom she had born to Abraham. And what was he doing? He was yitzaking. He was laughing now. So we've seen throughout the course of the book of Genesis. You've seen the laughing of incredulity of disbelief. You've seen now the laughing of joy at the fulfillment. And now you're seeing the laughing of mockery. It looks like. That somehow, or for some reason, Ishmael is making fun of Isaac. And you could see this, right? You're, you, you're the firstborn, but there's always, you, you see your mother treated as a different class than Sarah. And now Sarah has a son, and you see yourself in that supplanted. And so he's mocking, he's m- mocking Isaac. This little boy, this little baby is going to be, this little kid is going to be um, the heir through Abraham. And so he's, he's mocking. And so she says, now, now um, counsel Sarah. What do you think? You think she's in the right here? Seems really hard-hearted. She said to Abraham, cast out. This is the same verb that's used of Israel driving out the nations from Canaan. Get them out. Drive them out. Whatever you have to do. Cast them out. It's the same that's used of God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden get out you are ex, uh, expulsed sorry i don't know that word it's not coming to my mind you are kicked out this slave woman and her son and her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son isaac that sounds hard does it not hard especially when ishmael is drawing breath because of sarah's design it was sarah that said abram you should take the Egyptian slave and, and, uh, and raise up children for us. But now that she has a son in her own hands from her own womb, she says not so. He will not share the inheritance. Now you remember, I think, the last time that Sarah told Abraham something and the text says that he obeyed the voice of his wife. And it was one of his great fails that he that he obeyed her and took uh, the Egyptian woman now he's somewhat wiser in verse 11. He doesn't say, you got it, babe. We, uh, I'm on it. It says, the text, or it says the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on the account of his son. This, Ishmael is Abraham's son, and he loves him. He loves him. And so he's not presumably going to do it until God shows up and does something strange. But God said to Abraham... Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. The the literal rendering is obey her voice. For for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God says, look, Abraham, I know that you love Ishmael. And he's also going to say, I'll take care of Ishmael. But he is not your covenant son. Isaac is. and, And he's to be sent out. This, uh, and we'll get into this in, in a bit, but this is a picture, uh, this is a picture of the coming difference between Israel and the church. Uh, Paul is going to say that, he's going to reference and quote these very words in Galatians 4. So God says, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The idea is, Ishmael is the son of your flesh. You pulled him off. You did that. You planned. You executed. You had a son. That's all you're doing. But my covenant will come through miracle. My covenant will not come through flesh. It'll come through spirit. It'll come through grace. And therefore, it's going to be Isaac. Now in verse 13, it's an amazing thing. He, he promises to Abraham Probably because he knew that he would never hear the end of the intercession of Abraham for his son. God, I'm not turning him. I'm not going to send him out unless you give me some assurance that you're with him. I'm not going to do this. God says, I will make a nation of your son. The slave woman also because he is your offspring. I'm, I'm still in covenant with you. You trust me here and you do what I'm asking you to do. By the way. One of my favorite preachers, uh, S. Lewis Johnson, said that um, he called, he titled this text, The Weaning of Abraham. And he opened up to his church. He said, you know, we're going to look at the weaning of Abraham. And everybody's murmuring. And he said, you think I'm wrong. You think I, I meant to say the weaning of Isaac. It's the weaning of Abraham. This is warm up for what's coming in the next chapter where he will have to give over another son. This is practice. This is JV. And he's about to go varsity in the giving over of his son, Isaac. So God says of Ishmael, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he's your offspring. And so in verse 14, Abraham rose early in the morning. Now watch this. You're talking about a man who was staggering in his wealth. He rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child. And he sent her away. He sends her away with basic, basically nothing. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, there's something amazing here that I didn't see until I dug deeply into this text this week. Beersheba is a very important place, and it's going to come back into play at the end of this very chapter. And I've always seen them as distinct things. But I think there's a, I think there's a, a unity in this text about Beersheba. And, I'm going to posit a theory that um, when Abraham sent Hagar and Ishmael away, he did not send them away and leave them for good. I think he followed them and stayed close by to do them, to be able to do them well and not in disobedience to the Lord. I just think he they need to be out of the house, but he's going to follow. So I'll, I'll see if I can defend that in, in a few moments. Verse 15, when the water skin. So Hagar and Ishmael go out when the water in the skin was gone, she Put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. There's there's a suggestion here that Ishmael is somewhat pampered. I told you he's 14 to 16 years old. He's about Eli's age. And my guess is if Eli and Gracie or Eli and myself were in the wilderness wandering that I would probably be the first to drop, that there would be some robustness in that kid. But this kid is apparently um, of weaker disposition. And so he is on the verge of dying. And so she puts him under a bush. She goes away. It, it's, it's a heartbreaking thing that this woman does. She, she leaves presumably so that she can still be close, but not hear the suffering, hear the suffering of her son. It's amazing. Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Now, here's something amazing. Again, a play on the names of Abraham's sons in verse 17. And God Ishmael, the voice of the boy, he heard. That's what Ishmael's name means. God is a God of hearing. God heard, Notice not the voice of Hagar, but the voice of the boy. Um, There's many commentators, and I tend to agree with them, that say that God heard the voice of Ishmael because Ishmael knew that he had done wrong, and he's crying out in repentance. Lord, I I didn't mean to bring this on my mom. I didn't mean to bring this on myself to mock Isaac. And so he's crying out in, in repentance. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God. This is a marvelous text, brothers and sisters. I think this is Christ. And I think it's the same Christ that appeared when Hagar was expelled as a pregnant woman before Um, Christ shows up to her. So it says he's called the angel. So it says God heard the voice of the boy in verse 17. And then it says the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. So there's like a distinction there. It's like he was with God and was God, to, paraphr- to to quote a famous man. So it's the angel of God who's talking as though God is separate. God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Well, who just promised to make Ishmael into a great nation? It was God himself to, to Abraham. I, don't, don't be afraid. I will make him into a great nation. Then in verse 19, then God opened her eyes. So you're, you're seeing the raw stuff of the Trinity. It's, you don't see the theological term Trinity here, but you see the raw stuff from which that doctrine was codified. Watch this. This is significant. God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water, and gave the boy a drink. The, the idea of a well in this text is very significant, and the idea of the well in all of the scriptures is very significant. But, like, think about all the times in Scripture where we see, uh, where we see wells factoring really significantly. Usually, they mean some kind of a marriage in the offing. I've asked you this before: What happens when a man meets a woman at a well? They get married. What did Jesus say of himself when he met a woman at a well? He called himself living water. Here she's sitting right beside a well from which that, that can save her life and the life of her son. She just can't see it until she cries out to God and then he can open her eyes. Let me ask you something. Were you always able to see the glory of Jesus Christ? Were you always able to see the glory of the living water himself? Or do you know exactly what this is like? To be sitting in a place that you thought was a place of death. And then God opens your eyes and you realize, oh, this is the very ground of life. That he has, he has brought me here to reveal his son to me. So she opens her eyes and she sees a well. Now, um, where is she again? We, we just read in uh, verse 14 that she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And now she sees a well. Abraham, the whole next section is Abraham dealing with a well in Beersheba with uh, Abimelech. So it's, it's very interesting. So it says in verse 20, and God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And he lived. This is not accidental. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The wilderness of Paran is central in Egypt's history. When they were delivered from Egypt, they failed in Numbers 13 at the wilderness of Paran. This is where they disbelieved God and missed out on on entering the land, that, that Exodus generation. And so Ishmael is seen as a precursor to Israel. And Paul says this very thing in Galatians 4, verse 30, that uh, he says, Ishmael is Israel, and Isaac corresponds to the church of Jesus Christ. One is of the law and of flesh, and it's what man can accomplish, and the other is an entirely different thing. It's, it's of grace, and it's through faith. And so Ishmael is seen as a precursor to to Israel. By the way, how many, uh, how many tribes were there in Israel? There are 12. The promise to Ishmael is that there would be 12 princes. Ishmael, Israel—they—they—they they, they sound the same. This is a again a picture of um, the first that man does is Ishmael, but what God does is Isaac. The first, uh, first comes the law, and it prepares us to the point where we realize we cannot accomplish the things we need to accomplish by the law, by the flesh, and that prepares us for the coming Son of Promise, Jesus Christ. So. You see uh, faithfulness. You see problems in paradise. You see, uh, you see God meeting Ishmael and Hagar. And lastly, you're going to see um, some of the faith of the Philistines that God has used Abraham and his dealings with them uh, to, to elicit faith. Look in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. It's amazing to me that Abimelech seems to have a better understanding of the of the covenant of Abraham than Abraham does, right? Abraham is still like he just recently lied about like whether or not God is going to protect, and so I got to kind of scheme. Abimelech says, "Look, God is with you, and this is clear. You're a hundred years old, and you just had a had a son. We know God is with you in all that you do. Literally, in all that you do, even when you in, even when you lie to a neighbor and bring great sin upon his house." God was with you in that. It's an amazing statement of faith and irony. He says, now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me. Why would he be concerned about Abraham dealing falsely? Don't deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. It's an amazing thing. Abimelech is looking forward to the future in which God is going to be faithful to Abraham and he's going to have to live next door to him. And so he says, hey, let's let's work out a deal. Like, I'll be kind to you. Be kind to me. I want to be on the right side of God. And I know that to be on the right side of God, I got to be on the right side of Abraham. And so Abimelech says, let's make a covenant. It's an amazing text. It's beautiful. Now, in verse 25 Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a, made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs, You will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. And therefore, that place was called Beersheba. Where did Hagar and Ishmael go? By a well in Beersheba. And here, the very next text, Abraham is is trying to secure rights to a well in Beersheba. It's not accidental. Uh, By the way, the... uh, Beersheba means either the well of seven or the well of the oath. And it's, it's intended the same, the same way. So that place was called Beersheba because um, there both of them swore an oath. They, they swore together to be kind. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines and Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. No idea what that means, but it has some significance in Abraham's walk with the Lord that he's always worshiping God around the trees. I think there's something really significant about mountains and about trees and about rivers in the, in the original creation of God. And so you see some, uh, some suggestion of that throughout the, the history of redemption. This is why when I uh, – it's happened several times. I've been in the book of Genesis I'll will uh, I'll reach out my hand to Gracie to shake on something. And she's always like, I need to know the terms first. Because I always, you know, we shake first. And I'm like, okay, we're moving to the mountains and we're taking everybody in the church with us. Because mountains matter. So do trees. So go plant a tree. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned, sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Okay this whole text. So what, what, what's going on here? Three things and I'm done. The first flesh, the flesh, which is the things that we can accomplish is ever at war with the spirit, that which only God can do. Think about this. When you are disappointed with your life, with your walk with the Lord, like when, when you feel like, man, I just need to be doing more. I need to be doing better. What do you always do? If if you're anything like me, you always make a plan of like, this is this is how I'm going to get sanctified this week. Like I need some sanctification. So this is how I'm going to do it. You you can't do that. There are best practices. There are things that you should be doing. You should be reading your Bible. You should be praying. You should be going to church, celebrating communion. There's all sorts of things that you could be doing. But if God is not in those things, none of them work. They made a plan to to uh, to bring about the promises of God through through Hagar and through Ishmael. And it didn't work. It didn't work. God, because he's faithful, blessed that endeavor anyway, Blessed that child anyway. I think we'll spend an eternity with Ishmael. Um, But ultimately, that which God has promised comes by grace through faith. It's not what you can do, but it's what God has done and he's done it. Through Christ, But I want you to see this, that the flesh is always warring against the spirit. When, when the apostles preached in a, in a predominantly Jewish context about the free grace and mercy of God that's given to everybody by faith, the Jews warred against that the same way that Ishmael wars against the inheritance of Isaac. The flesh is always at war with the spirit. Secondly, God shows kindness to everyone but he shows covenant through Christ alone. Listen to me. Every person in the world that's breathing right now has experienced the kindness of God. Just the the general revelation of God, uh, general grace that, that restrains our folly, that holds us together, hearts that beat, lungs that work. All of those are just kindnesses of God to people. And so God is kind to Ishmael. Even though he said he's not the covenant is not going to come through him, which is in in essence to say Christ is not going to come through Ishmael, he's going to come through Isaac. And God has the prerogative to do that. So there's going to be there there is, God has kindness to all, but covenant only through Christ alone. If you would be in covenant with God, you need to be, and I need to be, like Abimelech came to Abraham. I know that God is with you and all of you do, but we, in all that you do, but we come to Christ. Everything we have from God we have through Christ, or we don't have it. So He's kind to all, but His covenant is through Christ alone. Thirdly and lastly, the Christian life is total surrender. That's what it is. Abraham got great gift from god in the birth of isaac and that great gift triggered wonderful sacrifice the giving over of a son the sending out of a son from the house that you can no longer inherit that son you got to trust him to god all of my stuff all of my provision everything's going to isaac he's out it's a it's it's horrific news to abraham As I told you in the beginning, it's only preparation for a greater ask that God is going to give. And he doesn't hesitate to give that ask when he's told to go sacrifice Isaac. And we'll look at this next week. To offer him as a burnt offering. This son for whom he has waited for 25 years. The next morning, Abraham goes on a journey to do that very thing. Now, the great news is when I say the Christian life is total surrender, let me just remind you of something. God never asks you to do something that he's not willing to do himself. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Abraham, offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. And Abraham intended to do that, but God didn't require. I want you to surrender everything to me. Abraham intended to do it. God didn't require it. So what does it mean that our God in the giving over his son of his son surrendered that which was most precious to him in order that he could get his son back by resurrection and with him a people purchased from their sin? It's an amazing thing. So let me just ask you, what would you hold back? What would be nightmare to you? God, don't ask me for that. Don't ask me for that. This, this text and the, and the giving over of Ishmael is just prep work for next, for next Sunday for uh, Genesis 22, which ultimately is just prep work and preparation for us seeing the glories of God and the giving over of his son. that He might have you for his own. Let me pray for us and we'll celebrate communion. Father, it's a marvelous, marvelous text where we see just pictures of... Um, pictures of your son who would who would have announced to a virgin in Bethlehem that she would be that she would conceive and give birth the son of David the son of Abraham the son of God the hope of nations and the the anticipation of all of redemptive history who would have who would have imagined such things and Mary praying just like Sarah did when she receives such news, borrows ideas from Sarah. She sees herself as cut in the same cloth. I too have had a miracle child. God, these are all of these things are pictures that you, uh, Israel, and the giving and the giving of the law, refusing to trust. They were put under the law so that transgression would abound, and so that they would be prepared to receive the gift of your Son when when He came to set them free from the law and to set them free into sonship and to accomplish all the demands of the law and to overcome all of their faults and their failures, to endure the curse of the law. Israel was preparatory. They do not inherit with your church that, that inherits by grace. Flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so we have, just like you had, a continued affection for Ishmael. And a continued provision for him. We have affection for for the physical descendants of Abraham. But God, we are your people through Christ. And so we pray for the repentance of Israel. We pray that you'd provide for them. And that as you met Ishmael in the wilderness in which Israel wandered. God, we pray that you would meet them there again and grant them repentance. That they would weep and in repentance, knowing what they have done to your son. Um, knowing that they've turned their back on their own Messiah. Would you grant repentance to Israel, Lord? We, um, God, we pray. We pray that we would be the type of people like Abraham who would be willing to trust you. And to surrender anything that you would ask knowing that you've never asked us to give you anything that wasn't already yours and knowing that you didn't spare giving us your son who was not ours. We had no right to ask it of you, but you loved us and you gave your son so that you could have us as a treasured possession. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you and we pray that we would take Um, great comfort in them. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.